Hi everyone and welcome back to our PM&R Lady Docs Board Review Podcast. My name is Dr. Patricia Goodwin and my name is Dr. Marjorie May Mamsaang. My name is Dr. Sheila Javeri. My name is Dr. Trisha Prince. This episode picks up where we left off last time with the world of electrodiagnostics, uh, focal nerve entrapments, and myopathies. But this time we're going to change gears a little bit and we'll be covering the ever-daunting motor neuron disease. But first, our disclaimer. Again, this is meant to serve as a study supplement in addition to your other study materials. You can be on the move while listening and give your eyes a rest. This podcast covers the major topics that are commonly seen for boards, but does not include all of them. It is also not meant to serve as a medical diagnosis podcast. Please see your regular physician for appropriate evaluation and treatment. So that being said, let's dive in. So what is uh, motor neuron disease? It is a disorder resulting from the progressive degeneration of the motor neurons in the spinal cord, brainstem, or motor cortex. This is a definition directly from your Cucurillo books. Um, So both upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron will be affected and we will see varying symptoms with that. Uh, Symptoms include weakness, cramping, stiffness, and functional decline. As you remember, your lower motor neuron signs are atrophy, flaccidity, hyperreflexia, and fasciculations. Your upper motor neuron signs are weakness, spasticity, hyperreflexia, and your Rabinsky sign, aka your upgoing toes. Um, anybody know what is another sign of upper motor neuron involvement that people tend to think of later on? The Hoffman reflex. All right. While we do get motor changes, there are usually no sensory changes seen in these patients. And last but not least, with EMG testing, only lower motor neuron aspects can be assessed. And your diagnosis is, again, made clinically. So what's the etiology of motor neuron disease? Your lower motor neurons include the alpha motor neurons that originate from the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord and cranial nerves that originate from nuclei in the brainstem. The upper motor neurons include the cortical spinal tracts that connect the cerebral cortex to the anterior horn cells in the cord and a cortical bulbar tract that connects the cerebral cortex to the cranial nerve nuclei in the brainstem. What are some lower motor neuron diseases? Your spinal muscular atrophy, your poliomyelitis, and post-polio syndrome. All right, so etiology. Lower motor neurons include the alpha motor neurons that originate from the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord and cranial nerve that originate from nuclei in the brainstem. Your upper motor neurons include the cortical spinal tracts that connect the cerebral cortex to the anterior horn cells in the cord and a cortical bulbar tract that connects the cerebral cortex to the cranial nerve nuclei in the brainstem. Your lower motor neuron diseases are spinal muscle atrophy, poliomyelitis, and post-polio syndrome. And your upper motor neuron diseases are primary lateral sclerosis, or PLS, and hereditary spastic paraplegia, or HSP. And what's the most common upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron motor neuron disease that we know of? ALS. ALS. Okay. So, clinical pre- presentation for motor neuron diseases. Your electrodiagnostic findings in general, you'll have, in order to figure out if someone has a motor neuron disease, you're going to evaluate at least one upper and one lower limb. You're starting in the most severely affected muscles. And again, you must rule out treatable neuropathies that mimic motor neuron disease. For example, um, multifocal motor neuropathy, which includes conduction block and temporal dispersion. That's not seen in motor neuron diseases. Your nerve conduction study findings for your SNAP, you're typically gonna have normal amplitudes and conduction velocities, but you're gonna have abnormalities that can be seen in Uh, HSP, 
and spinal bulbar muscular atrophy. Your CMAP is going to be variable. There can be abnormality, abnormalities in weakened muscles with asymmetric side-to-side -side comparisons. Um, and this is essentially normal or slightly decreased conduction velocity and latency with significant fast fiber axonal demyelination. Your amplitudes may be decreased secondary to axonal loss if there is significant atrophy present. And then if you do an F wave on these patients, you're going to have abnormal latency and you're also going to have persistence with chronal dispersion. When it comes to the EMG findings, you're going to have active denervation with re-innervation that must be found in three of four body segments. For example, your cranial bulbar, cervical, thoracic, and lobosacral areas. And you must have at least two muscles with different innervations uh, that should be abnormal. Chronic neurogenic changes that can be seen, that's going to involve decreased motor unit uh, potential recruitment, large motor unit action potentials, and rapid firing potentials. And for the denervation potentials, like your fibs, positive short waves, and fasciculations, you can also see those. You will have decreased re recruitment and polyphasic potentials. And if you were to do a small fiber EMG, you are going to have abnormal fiber density, and you're gonna have jitters, and you're also going to have blocking. Now let's get into the disorders. For spinal muscular atrophy, this is basically a group of autosomal recessive disorders they're characterized by progressive weakness of the lower motor, lower motor neurons. There are four different types of SMA. Type 1, also known as acute infantile or Wernicke-Hoffman disease. Onset is birth to six months, and 95% of these patients have signs and symptoms by about three months of age. This is the worst prognosis, and there's usually death by two to three years old. This is rapid, fatal progression, and it's mostly because of respiratory failure. You will have a floppy baby or hypotonia, and this baby will be unable to reach milestones. You're going to have severe generalized weakness. They're also going to be areflexic. They're going to have difficulty feeding, and they're also going to have a weak cry. A lot of these babies will have a frog-like posture. They're going to be doing diaphragmatic breathing, and they're going to have a bell-shaped chest. It's possible to see tongue fasciculations in these patients. The facial muscles will be the least affected and the extraocular muscles are going to be intact and the sphincter muscles are also speared. This child will never sit independently. There's no evidence of cerebral involvement in these patients. Their diagnostic workup, it's basically going to show a normal CK. Um, muscle biopsy, you'll have um, large group atrophy and clusters of large fibers as a progressive, but in early stages it's gonna, it can be inconclusive. Um, but the atrophy will usually be type 1 fibers, and that are noted at uh, later stages. It's usually about 6 to 8 weeks afterwards. For the EMG nerve conduction studies, these patients will have a normal snap. They will have an abnormal CMAP, and again, that'll be a decreased amplitude and possibly decreased conduction velocity. There can be a mild increase in amplitude and duration of the motor unit potentials and FIBS. There's also going to be decreased recruitment. Treatment for these patients is going to be supportive and suctioning. Again, this is rapid fatal progression. For type 2, this is also known as the chronic infantile form. Onset is usually 6 to 18 months. Their lifespan varies from 2 years old to anywhere in the third decade of life. However, most of these patients are in a wheelchair by the time they are two to three years old. 
This is a slower progression, but again, it's also fa fatal, and it's mostly due to respiratory failure. Floppy baby, hypotonia. Um, they will have gradual progressive limb weakness, upper more, to the, more than lower limbs, and they will also be areflexic. The face is least affected, just like in SMA type 1. Uh, these patients will also have kyphoscoliosis. They will have Aquinas deformity of the feet. The most common manifestation for these patients will they will be having a developmental motor delay between 6 to 18 months. You have progressive pulmonary involvement. They may or may not have tongue fasciculations. They will have normal to advanced intellect. They will have joint laxity. They'll have postural tremor affecting their fingers. And that's attributed to fasciculations of their skeletal muscles. They will be able to sit independently and they will have assistive devices to help them stand and walk. Their diagnostic workup is similar to SMA type 1, so the CK is going to be normal or it can be elevated. Their muscle biopsy will show large group atrophy as well as clusters of large fibers, and these are your type 1 fibers again. Your EMG nerve conduction study is going to show normal snaps. You're going to have abnormal CMAP, and again, that's decreased amplitude and possibly decreased conduction velocity. They will have fibs. They will have short duration, uh, small amplitude MUAPs. They'll also have decreased recruitment. And these patients will have supportive treatment, but they can also undergo rehab. Your type 3 SMA is also known as chronic juvenile or kugelbler willinder syndrome. This onset is after 18 months of age. These patients have a normal life expectancy. However, they can be in a wheelchair by the time they hit year um, age 30. This is a slow progression, it's a mild form. They have symmetric weakness, but this involves more the lower limbs in more than the upper limbs. They are also irreflexic. They may or may not have Gower sign and uh, calf pseudohypertrophy. They may or may not have dysphagia and dysarthria. They will have tongue fasciculations, but this is a late onset. They will have normal intelligence. They will be able to stand independently and walk independently, but they will have trouble with their motor skills, and that involves going up and down the stairs. Um, their diagnostic workup, again, very similar. Your CK is going to be normal to elevated. Muscle biopsy is going to be large group atrophy as well as clusters of large fibers. They will also have a focal small group atrophy that can be seen. Uh, nerve conduction studies, you're going to have normal SNAP, a possible normal CMAP. They're going to have FIBS. They're also going to, they can have large duration, large amplitude, or short duration, small amplitude MOAPs, and they're also going to have decreased recruitment. Again, treatment is going to be supportive, and these patients will also undergo re rehab as well. Your type 4 SMA is also known as the adult onset form. This onset is after 20 years old. This is slowly progressive proximal muscle weakness, and they have a normal life expectancy. All right, so poliomyelitis. Polio involves the degeneration of anterior horn cells. It occurs when the coronavirus orally enters the body and spreads via lymphatic system, leading to orphaned muscle fibers. Um, for their clinical presentation, they're essentially first present with fever, malaise, a sore throat, vomiting, headache, neck and back pain, and stiffness. They will have weakness or areflexia. They may have bulbar, signs of bulbar palsy, which includes uh, dysphagia. Not the dysphagia that you get with um, strokes and also a nasal voice. Uh, the sensation is spared in these patients. They may have autonomic dysfunction. Prognosis is um, 
you know, the disease can progress or remit throughout their life. It's a 25% uh, chance of severe disability, 25% have mild disability, and 50% um, have complete recovery. The mortality uh, incidence is one to four percent chance in children. You have a 10% chance in adults with bulbar and respiratory involvement. For the electrodiagnostic findings, you will have a normal snap, because I said sensation is spared. Your CMAP can be normal or decreased. These patients will have a large dura uh, long duration, large amplitude molaps. They will have decreased recruitment as well. The treatment overall for polio is rehab, pain management, and also to prevent contractures. So be very aware in these patients, but again, with the advent of um, vaccinations and so on and so forth, polio, for the most part, has been eradicated. Um, moving into post-polio syndrome, this is essentially the loss of the anterior horn cells from decades before, typically it's around 30 years uh, after polio. Um, it's not completely known uh, why it happens, but the hypothesis is that it's due to a burnout of the motor units from the increased metabolic demand or normal axon loss with aging. Their clinical presentation is based on what's known as the Halstead-Ross criteria. So you need to have a history of a previous diagnosis of polio, uh, recovery of function as well. You have to have been stable for approximately 15 years with your polio, and you have to have a return of symptoms. But the real important thing is that there's no other medical problems that would explain your new onset of symptoms like weakness and atrophy. These patients will also have difficulty with their ADLs, so fatigue, arthralgia, myalgia, cold intolerance. Electrodiagnostic findings for these patients, they will have a normal SNAP. Their CMAP will be abnormal. They will also have decreased recruitment. They will have a long duration, large amplitude molaps, and they will be very, uh, they will look pretty large on EMG. They will have a single fiber EMG that will show increased jitter, fiber density and blocking as well. Low rate repetitive stimulation will also be normal in these patients. Electrophysiologically, it resembles the old stable polio. Its diagnosis is not based on electrodiagnostics, but more on clinical presentation. Treatment for these patients will involve rehab, assistive devices, energy conservation, psychological counseling, and again, to avoid fatigue. With these patients, you, you're okay with them exercising, but again, they need to know their limits before they become um, fatigued. Now moving on to our favorite motor neuron disease, ALS, also known as? Lou Gehrig. All right, um, this is degeneration <laughs> of the anterior horn cell. Its etiology is still unknown, but it does involve both the upper and lower motor neurons. The clinical presentation for these patients, it's most common in men after their sixth decade of life. First signs that you'll see are asymmetric atrophy, weakness, and fasciculations. They will have dysphagia, so oral and pharyngeal phase, and they also have dysarthria. They will have pseudobarbar signs that includes difficulty chewing, swallowing, and speech along with unprovoked emotional outbursts. The bowel and bladder will typically be spared. Their sensation is also spared, and your extraocular muscles will also be intact. You will have upper and motor, lower motor neuron um, sign involvement. Prognosis for these patients, 50% die within three years, 30% live for five years, 10% live for 10 years. Um, 
most of these patients will be in a wheelchair by 12 to 18 months after um, disease onset. Predictors of survival for these patients, age of onset, the younger, age of, younger they are, the better it is for them, um, the severity of their onset, pulmonary uh, function is also key for these patients if they have abnormal sniff tests, and that is a big uh, predictor of poor survival. The sniff test is basically a fluoroscopic exam that's used to evaluate whether the diaphragm moves in the proper direction during its various maneuvers, including normal breathing and while rapidly inhaling. The electric diagnostic findings for these patients, uh, your SNAP and your CMAP will be normal, but they will have abnormal spontaneous potentials. Again, that involves what? Fibs and, and positive sharp waves. Okay. They, they will also have decreased recruitment. They will have larger, long duration, large amplitude MOAPs. They will have uh, CRDs. They will have uh, increased decrement for the LL, LRRS. The single fiber EMG will also show increased jitter and fiber densities. The protocol for evaluation with electrodiagnostics it's going to be abnormal activity in two muscles from two different nerve roots in three different body regions so let me say that one more time you're going to have abnormal activity in two muscles from two different nerve roots in three different body regions treatment for ALS is going to involve rehab big thing is preventing contractures you want them to do some maximal exercise to avoid fatigue a tracheostomy should they need it Respiratory therapy is key. Rylazole is like the big medicine that we give to these patients. Um, and it's an anti-glutamate medication that slows the degree, um, disease progression and it prolongs their ventilator time. And then if they need, you can also have these patients on BiPAP. Um, don't forget to review PLS and HSP as they are pure upper motor neuron diseases. Thanks for listening and see you next time on our PMNR Lady Docs Board Review Podcast. Our references for this topic include our Cucurilla book, um, our Pocketpedia, and also the McLean course in electrodiagnostic medicine. So, Marjorie, what's your favorite part of residency? Or what was your favorite part of residency? I think my favorite part about residency is the camaraderie that you have amongst these people. You guys are all doing the same things under the same amount of stress. Um, and if I think of my favorite times in residency, it would be probably every time we try to get everyone together because it's important to be to work together and have a good working environment, but it's also important to be outside and do fun things outside of work. So we'd always try to get every now and then get everyone together to do something fun, like go to a bar, go to a restaurant. But for some reason, every time we plan something, it would always end up being just the girls, just these P and R lady docs going to these things. So that's probably one of my favorite times. Oh yeah. So that's saying something, right? What is that says, that says a lot. That says docs? a lot about us. We're very committed to the cause. <laughs> that means we're awesome, and you should listen yes. to our board review podcast. Probably because you're going to learn a lot. Definitely. That's basically what it means. Yes. Okay. Good. All right, Trisha. What was your favorite part of residency? Um. Marjorie kind of stole everybody's thunder with that. Uh, <laughs> you can give us a specific example, too, if you, if you um, just, like, remember something off the top of your head. Honestly, I'd probably say our neural rehab rotation was probably one of the funnest times, and including also our VA rotation, because I felt like 
you're really getting into the nitty gritty of managing patients after acute injuries and then you're seeing patients that are coming with long-term injuries at the VA after you know blast injury or whatever the case was so it was nice it was nice to see like everything kind of come from a full circle and realize like oh, okay I actually learned something and I know how to treat these patients now so that was kind of rewarding and pretty fun honestly well I have to say shield one of my most memorable moments is us working at our acute inpatient rehab hospital in the newly renovated lounge room that they made. Oh my gosh, with when the couches two lazy for boys were delivered. <laughs> <laughs> and we just so happened to have these carts on wheels, which we called cows, which I but think apparently we're not it's allowed offensive. to call we them. We can't cows, call them that. We can't but we call, call them, them cows on our podcast. We call them it's cows. our podcast. So but we had our cows. We brought them into the lounge room and we're, we each have a lazy boy recliner. It was the best. And we pull the cow up to the lazy boy recliner. And recline. And we're working notes. on our orders and our notes. And then it just so happened to be the week of my birthday, and Sheil had made me a Funfetti cake, which was so delicious. And I will forever remember this <laughs> I rem- I remember that week, too. It was, <laughs> oh, it was a good memory. It was the best week. It was, it was fun. It was awesome. And you know what? It just so happened to be in the TBI wing, too. It was. It, was. it, it actually was. <laughs> I haven't seen those lazy boys around recently, though. I think they're patient lazy boys. They are. We just happen to get lucky yeah. and use them yeah. when they're brand new. Yeah. And I wouldn't use them. I think we had to take the plastic off of one of them. <laughs> That's how new they were. We got lucky. Though. Yeah, we did. We definitely did. <laughs> good times. Good times. One of my favorite memories from residency is probably, I mean, piggybacking off what Marjorie said, a lot of the events that we did together... You know, I remember one weekend at Trisha's place, we end up playing games and stuff, board games, and just hanging out and talking about non-medical things. And I think that it's really important, especially in this field, to have some type of relationship with your coworkers, colleagues, and peers outside of the workplace. Um, I mean, I think that it's great. And it's kind of led to a long-lasting friendship between all of us, even after residency has ended. And I think in general, just doing things outside of your box is a good way to push yourself. And if it's something that you really enjoy doing, for example, like I just did this Grand Canyon hike, which I do enjoy hiking and I like doing things outdoors. But for me, this like pushed me to the whole next level, like physically, so that mentally I had to just keep telling myself, you can do this, you can do this. And like you just achieve things you never thought possible. And I think in residency, it's a lot about that. Like you're just pushing yourself to the next level and every year as you graduate to the next PGY level, like you see yourself improve. But it's important to also have like another side of yourself where you get to enjoy your hobbies and and just grow into yourself as a physician. Yeah. So. Time management is important. Yeah. All right, until next time. PMNR Lady Docs makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. While the information contained within the podcast is believed to be accurate at the time of recording, no guarantee is given that the information provided in this podcast is correct, complete, and or up to date. The materials contained on this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute medical or other professional advice on any subject matter. 
All information, content, and material of this podcast is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. If you're having a medical emergency, stop this podcast and call 911.